It's Monday, April 29th, episode 50, two more and that's a year, and I'm feeling like talking about 5e. 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons seems like a popular topic with the OSR Anchorites. Um, so it's my game of choice right now. Uh, I don't know if, I, I mean, it has a lot to do with that's what everybody's playing, but it also has a lot to do with it's a good game. Um, I do like its modularity, although someone called into Colin and um, mentioned that the modularity being uh, a selling point isn't really a good selling point because any RPG is modular, right? You can tack on any number of systems to any RPG. I mean, even if we were playing White Wolf, right? Vampire, um, or any of their other myriad of systems, uh, a D, primarily D10 system, we could graft on this D20 uh, random encounter table, or um, we could even uh, graft on D20 saving throws if we really wanted to and if we really worked at it. So I think um, when I say modularity, um, I mean that we can pull it apart and break it into sections and copy those sections and then paste them back in. Um, I, I, I think the modularity is more from that unified mechanic, all right? 1d20 to rule them all. And that's got its good and bad points. Someone also mentioned that um, the whole attribute thing doesn't really matter. And that's very true, right? I have, I, I, strength is the only one that I can think of that really matters, right? Because that's encumbrance. Um, everything else, it's all about your modifier. There is no, there, there is no game mechanic that relies on your constitution score. Uh, in fact, on the character sheet, um, and when I started, I got this wrong because I thought attributes were more important, right? There's a large box and a little bubble. Um, the little bubble is actually where your attribute goes, not where your uh, modifier goes, because the modifier is what you're using most of the time. So they recognized this when they made D&D, right? It was made this way. Um, so I think they could have definitely, like, shrunk that down instead of 3 to 18 it could have been um whatever 2 to 9 right half of that but i think they stuck with 3 to 18 because that's the way dnd's always been so uh, i think they wanted to change the the spread maybe of of your attribute and uh how it works but not change that core 3d6 mechanic right um which is odd because it is it is the only 3d6 mechanic left in there. There is nothing else um, that uses 3d6, right? Uh, and I know a lot of um, a lot of times back in the day we would roll 3d6 under um, or d20 under. Uh, d20 under is a bit more swingy. 3d6 under has um, has that that bell curve, so you're you're most likely going to hit in the middle all the time. So they definitely looked at it and they wanted it more swingy than previous editions with skills and stuff. Um, in fact, as far as skills go, I don't even remember how um, non-weapon proficiencies worked uh, back in first edition. Or, And I know they were part of second edition, but I don't remember how they worked either in second edition. Um, so it could have been... Like, the way I remember it is you had the skills so you used it. You never had to roll against it. But again, um, I don't know if I was playing that right. I don't know if my memory is correct because that was so long ago um, and th those tastes were hazy, believe me. Um, 
but I, I imagine it as that way, right? So if someone could call in and correct me, that'd be great. Um, I'm probably not going to pick up a second edition book just to look it up. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I, I suppose I could find a se second edition retro clone and see how they do it. Um, I, I know a lot of the retro clones, speaking of which, use that, um, use uh, some of the retro clones, I don't know if a lot of them do, some of them that I've read use a multiple D6 to uh, represent uh, difficulty, right? Uh, 2d6 under for something really easy, 4d6 or 5d6 under for something really hard. And uh, I like that, right? Because you can you can gauge your difficulty there. Um, there's a bit of math involved, right? But if you have a chart, right? You're a DM who, does, who doesn't have a thousand charts if you're a DM, right? Um, you could look up that spread and go, okay, this is how difficult I want it to be. And uh, I would imagine after two or three games, you just go, okay, I want 5d6 because you, you know what your difficulty is in your head, right? You've got that gauged, you've got that metered out, and you're used to the system, right? Um, something else we've been talking about, system mastery is is really, um, I don't know if important in choice is the word I want to do, but it's really relevant in choice of games systems, right? If, if I have the mastery of several systems, then I, I feel less likely to say, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to go with this system over that system, right? If someone says, if I've got mastery over three systems and someone says I want to play one of those three, I'm going to go cool, right? But if I've got mastery over one system and somebody wants to play um, an adjacent system to that, I'm probably going to push them back over, right? Right. Uh, so I'm guessing most of you, if someone said, hey, let's play Lambert Lord, you might say, well, why don't we just play BX, right? It's, it's pretty much the same thing, and that's what I'm used to playing, right? Especially if you're running it. Like, I'm not talking about playing. Uh, when I say play, I mean run, because I don't play D&D &D anymore. I run D&D. &D. Um, so take that with a grain of salt when I'm saying play. Um, yeah, so I lost my train of thought there explaining that. All right, re-railed. Uh, system mastery is is really relevant to decision. Um, I think another, another part of the decision is... Um, like time spent with the game, right? I know, so, um, like I'll take an example that all of us should know, Jason Hobbs, if you don't know who Jason Hobbs is, do an internet search, I'll probably put his name in the show notes now that I've said it, and uh, go out and listen to his podcasts, right? Uh, he's got some really good information, he runs some really good games, and uh, I really like the way his games come across, right? These are, he has many things that I try to emulate in my games, right? Um, and he uses BX, right? Basic Expert. Um, and he's spent a lot of time with BX. And he has developed a lot of his own systems for BX, right? Because again, BX is very rules light, so it's easy to tack on those other rules, right? It's, it's again, that modularity, I'm using air quotes, that people talk about with tacking on rules. Um, and I think, again, that's, that's something different. I think we need to correct our terminology there. Uh, the modularity of D&D is being able to pull it apart and look at it. 5th um, uh, edition D&D. The modularity of BX is more the ability that it's easy to put in subsystems. Um, and like I said, Jason has a lot of subsystems. And I know he's grabbed a lot of systems from different places and tacked them on to his BX. I mean, tacked on sounds weird and bad. Um, but again, this game at its roots is very simple. So adding a system on literally with scotch tape or some spit it, it fits it works and it's 
um, maybe not elegant as fifth edition can do it, right? Because of that modularity again, you can you can design a module that fits in with fifth edition really well because there's one system. Uh, where with BX, there's several systems. Um, uh, of course, I'm when I'm thinking about BX, I'm more thinking about first edition. So. I, I still think in BX there are several systems, right? There's two hits, there's saving throws, there's skills. Um, and all those three things operate differently. And uh, I, I would imagine differently depending on who you're playing with, too. Maybe not um, two hits and saving throws, but skills probably definitely differ um, on who you're playing with. So, seeing the time Jason has spent with BX, he's going to be reluctant to move over to 5th edition because now, um, at least in his mind, right, this this may or may not be true, right? It's Because it's all about perception, right? It's all about Jason's opinion on the system, right? That's why he has a system preference. His, his answer may or may not be right depending on who's looking at that answer because it's an opinion. So his system preference is going to be the system that he spent the most time with, the system that he's added the most to, the system that he's worked within and got in there and gotten his hands dirty with. I haven't played D&D in a long time before 5th edition. There were things that I remember from when I played that carry over into 5th edition, into my 5th edition game, right? Um, I, I tweak 5th edition to my liking. I turn the knobs that I can see, and when there's not a knob there, I add knobs in. So, this is the system I've spent the most time with. This is the system that I've developed the most subsystems for. This is the system that I feel comfortable with, and I can say, oh yeah, that's a DC-15, definitely. Um, I, I, I even feel, at this point, so in the book, the difficulties go up by fives, right? Because that makes it easy, right? It's... Uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, I think. Uh, so there's kind of six ranges. Um, I would never use a DC-5, I don't think. I don't even think I'd have someone roll for that. That 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 low, low, low percent chance of failure, like that, to fail on that, you really need a negative in your stat. Because even with a plus one, that's down to like, I don't even know. Uh, plus one would be four chances on the die, so that's I, I guess it's a twenty percent chance of failure, which is which seems pretty big, but it's an eighty percent chance of a success. So unless it's like something super like intense that I want like a negative outcome, I'm not gonna have someone roll for that. So really, there's five levels of DC, right? And I'm comfortable now in fifth edition to go between those. I might call for a DC seventeen or a DC 12 instead of a DC 10 or 15, right? I can judge, in my opinion, those those shades of gray between the, the big numbers, right? Whereas um, when I started DMing, I had that difficulty chart in front of me and I said, okay, this, this seems very hard, so I'm gonna make it a DC 20, you know? This seems impossible, so it's gonna be a DC 30. This is Cockatrice Nuggets with Rich Frazier, serving you up a heaping helping of RPG nuggets straight to your gaming table. Alright, well let's talk about inspiration. That seems to be a thing that not a lot of people like in 5e. Um, and I can see that. It's very tacked on. It's very, 
outside of the scope of the rules. It feels like, well, so it was one of the last things added in 5e from what I understand. Um, I don't think backgrounds were one of the last things added. I think backgrounds were already there. I think inspiration though was, the, they wanted that mechanical, I, I don't know what they were thinking with inspiration. So what I like to do with inspiration, it gives the players um, a control that they wouldn't normally have over the dice, right? They can use that inspiration to change one of their roles. Now, I kind of don't like people passing around inspiration, but depending on the situation, I'm okay at, at it, you know? So my general rule of thumb is if you guys are next to each other, you can go ahead and pass that inspiration on. If there's a role play reason for you to pass that inspiration on or a role play wait for you to pass that inspiration on you know he looks to the left and sees me standing there egging him on with my eyes go ahead and give him that inspiration you know what I mean but as it is with um, backgrounds playing your personality traits isn't really that cool you know I don't it it's first of all it's five things for the DM to keep track of that for each player, right? I have to have a list of their traits, bonds, flaws, and whatever the last one is. Um, and, and I have to know them. And I have to go, oh yeah, you're playing to your trait. It's not even like I can have a list, right? I can have that list, but I have to consult it after everything, anybody has ever said anything. I'm not going to take that rule out of the game, though. What I do do, haha, let's not go there. Um, what I do though is place it in my player's hands. If you feel like you're playing one of your role-playing traits, then or your background traits, then go ahead and let me know. Hey, this is my trait. I feel like I'm doing it. I feel like I should get inspiration. And boom, 90% of the time I'm gonna give it, right? Unless you're, I don't know. I don't know, there may be a situation that's why I say 90% of the time. Probably going to give you inspiration for it. I've also compiled a list of other ways you can get inspiration. Things like reminding me of a creature, creature's special attack. Or reminding me of something that um, nobody has, you know, that I'm overlooking that is against you guys. Uh, continuing to adventure and skipping a rest. Um, to me, in my mind, some of these things didn't seem like the kind of thing that would be worth inspiration, especially like continuing instead of resting. Uh, but someone did it the other day. Someone was like, hey, instead of resting, if we just continue down to the next thing, can we all get inspiration? And I was like, hell yeah. So they all got inspiration. And half of them had inspiration already, but you know. And depending on who you're playing with, right, if they're tight with inspiration, you're going to hold on to that inspiration and wait for the right moment to use it. But if you're free with inspiration, then it's going to be going around a lot more, right? And I like to see inspiration used. Um, it, it adds something to the game for the player, especially, I feel. Um, I don't get inspiration. Uh, and I would use it all the time if I did, so... Um, there is a, an alternate inspiration rule out there um, that I grabbed off of Reddit or something. Not that I use this, but I've seen it. And what it states is 
there's a like a bowl of inspiration in the center. And every time you use it, use inspiration, you have to throw your coin back into that bowl. And then the DM can dip into that bowl and use the inspiration. The inspiration that the DM has, he can then pass off to players. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I have also come up with alternate ways to use inspiration. Not that it needs many alternate ways. I find that people already use inspiration, you know, as advantage quite often. Um, I change it. I word it differently. I don't. I, I, I'm not sure how Player's Handbook says it because it's been a long time since I've read it, and I need to sit down and reread those basic rules again, um, j just for calling, right? Um, anyway. So I'm not sure what the wording is, but I changed the wording to re-roll any one die. So not give you advantage, right? Because advantage on advantage means nothing. Um, not to, um, you know, change a die roll or anything like that. But it replace, it makes you re-roll one die, you know? And I specifically left that vague. Uh, it can be a damage die. It can be, hell, I'd even let it be a hit point die, right? if someone was rolling their hit points. But then again, that's one of those cases where there's not going to be sharing inspiration. Um, any one die means one of my dice, you know? I had a situation where I crit last session. I, maybe it was the session before. And somebody spent inspiration to make me re-roll that die. Uh, and, and things like that, I think, keep inspiration flowing in my table. Also, I like magic items that use inspiration. Um, it's uh, Adventures in Middle-Earth, the, the 5e um, Lord of the Rings setting and system, right? Because they changed a lot of stuff in there. Uh, I still haven't had a chance to go through all of it, but uh, when, I get, when I get the time, I, I, I would like to plug through all the books that I have of it because there's, I've got quite a few, and there's some really, really good uses of 5e mechanics in there, inspiration being one of them. So you can use inspiration to power a magic item. The magic items in Middle-earth are pretty mundane because it's a low magic setting. A real low magic setting, not like 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons is a low magic setting. Um, so I want to say, um, you know, somebody was talking about a pair of boots. And these boots let you, like, they increase your speed by a little bit or something like that. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was that they did. But if you use inspiration, you could use them to run across the wall for one round, right? So that gave me a lot of a lot of ideas for creating magic items. On the subject of creating things, I find 5e relatively easy to create for. Um, I find a more detailed stat block easier to break apart than a short stat block, right? Um, of course, a short stat block, there's less there to muddle around with. So you can just say, oh, this guy's a 4HD creature who has the special attack of Breathe's Fire. Um, where in 5th edition, you might want to... It, it might not that be that quick to develop a character, right? But all the stuff on the, on the stat block comes from these certain assumptions that are made when creating characters or um, NPCs or creatures. There's a great table in the DMG based on the spreadsheet that 
Wizards of the Coast uses to determine what um, CR creature is when they create it. Um, many companies out there, Cobalt Press among them, use this information when they create characters or when they create creatures. Um, and it's a bit different than 5th edition. Um, not sure where Dungeon Master's Guide fell in publication, but I'm guessing it was the third book published. So the Monster Manual had already been published, and they had possibly tweaked uh, monsters after they had published the Monster Manual. Uh, I, again, I'm not sure, but this is my feeling on it. And um, when you create a monster and use those things from the book, from the Dungeon Master's Guide, the monster feels a lot more powerful, right? If you go into Creature Codex and pull out some monsters that are of a specific CR and compare them to the Wizards of the Coast Monster Manual monsters of a similar CR, they're pretty beefy, right? Um, now, I'm not exactly sure if that comes from my theory or if it is because a lot of the creatures in Creature Codex have special abilities. Uh, same with Mordenkainen's and Volos. A lot of those creatures seem more powerful, but they have more special abilities as well. They don't just swing and hit, swing and hit, swing and hit, right? Um, but 5e has a really robust area on creation of monsters. I don't know about magic items, though. I do struggle a bit when I create magic items. Of course, I haven't busted open my DMG and looked for magic item creation. In fact, I don't know that I've read the Dungeon Master's Guide all the way through. Um, I know there are certain sections that I've read all the way through, but I did give it a stern flipping through when I got it. Uh, this was before D&D Beyond, so I was buying hardcovers. Um, I have, since D&D Beyond, I have stopped. If I, I, I want to read something, I generally send it to my Kindle through some contrived method um, to get it, and uh, it's, it works very well. The book splits itself into chapters. The only one I've, I've had problems with reading that way is the Monster Manual, which basically splits it into 24 different chapters, one for each letter, uh, which having 24 different books on a Kindle uh, to go through is strange to me, right? I put it all in one folder on the Kindle, though, so I can reference that anytime I want to look at the monster menu. Anyway, regardless, um, I need to look in the DMG and see if it has advice for creating magic items. Because thinking about it, I, I'm sure it would. It's got advice for creating worlds. It's got advice for creating adventures. It's got advice for creating um, maps and counter tables. Um, creatures, right? Did I say that already? I know I talked about it. Um, magic items should be in there, realistically. But my biggest problem when creating a magic item is assigning a rarity, right? Because I generally don't have it do damage or do something, right? I give it a special effect. Um, maybe part of a feat or maybe a monster special ability or maybe um, a, a feature from a class, you know? Um, I, I like to make unique magic items because if I got if I want something that gives you a plus and does damage, then I've kind of got a book full of those already. Um, and if not, I can really like pick one and move it over. You know, I can turn a wire wand of fireballs into a wand of cold of cold cone of cold really easily. Um, 
creating things though I feel is really easy in 5th edition again because of the modularity of the system the ability to pull the system apart and look at its subsystems that all go back to that that unified die roll right so we can pull apart these pieces and look at the like I haven't spent enough time looking at magic items is probably my problem right uh, when I look at a magic item and assign a rarity to it I decide more based on how much it's going to cost or sell for and how late in the game the character should possess it right so if I'm thinking uh, it, it, it feels like breaking it up into tiers would be a good idea, right? So, uh, uncommon would be uh, tier one, uh, rare would be tier two, very rare would be uh, tier three, and legendary would be uh, tier four. That seems like a pretty simple way to do it. I don't know if it works out because that just kind of popped into my head. So, uh, I'm going to take a look at that and maybe maybe arrange things that way. Uh, that that seems like a good way, at least for my Midgard campaign. Um, right now, I'm having the problem in my Midgard campaign of... Well, I'm not having a problem. Um, uh, they found some arrows. And I have a treasure deck from Swords and Wizardry that I use. So I just pull cards and just say what's on the card. Because uh, I'm not worried about giving them overpowered stuff. Because it doesn't matter if they're overpowered. Because they can always encounter something more powerful, right? Um, anyway, that's the whole... That's like balancing encounters, right? I don't, I don't really balance encounters. I don't say, oh, you're, you're in tier one, so I'm going to use a lower level uh, random monster generator. No, I've got a list of monsters and that I generate from, and I just roll randomly. Uh, when I do years, use tier tables, I usually roll a die along with it. Okay, tier one's going to be more common than tier two, so you know, I'll roll a d8, go one for tier one, two, four. Actually, that's backwards, so whatever. Anyways, uh, you know, I'll, I'll assign my tables so that there is definitely the possibility of a dragon swooping down on a first-level party. But realistically, would a dragon swoop down on a first-level party? Probably not. Uh, unless he was really hungry, you know. At any rate, uh, I've lost myself. Okay, so my problem in my current campaign is I gave them um, some things that were, I believe, very rare, and it, like, it just exploded into gold, right? They didn't even care. Uh, first of all, it was ammunition, so they didn't even care to keep it, right? I mean, a plus three arrow is pretty beefy, but you can really only use it once, right? So this becomes, like, a um, consumable magic item, right? So uh, it, it adds to the collection of all these potions that they're saving, right? And I don't know if y'all play video games or Skyrim or Morrowind in particular, but at the end of the game, you've got this inventory full of potions that you're saving for just the right moment in time, you know? And that moment in time's never going to come, or it's already passed, or you didn't even realize it when it was there. So they were just like, let's sell it, you know? It's worth a ton of gold, and it leveled them up quite a bit. Uh, we're doing gold for XP, if you didn't know. Um, so when they spend gold, they get experience points, and then they can spend the experience points on their characters. So it was, uh, I don't know if it was a mistake. I didn't like the way it played out. Um, 
I'm trying to pay more attention to that now. Uh, but if I'm rolling random treasure, it's going to be random regardless. So That's all the nuggets I've got this week. Show notes available at slackernerds.com. Want to reach out? Send a voice message using the Anchor FM app or website. Email me at cockatrice-nuggets at slackernerds.com or check out my blog at slackernerds.com with links to Patreon and all my other socials. Come join us on the Audio Dungeon Discord server. This podcast is ranked via iTunes, so leave me a review and some stars there. Share with your friends and shout it from the rooftops. However you want to get the word out is great with me. Thanks for listening.